Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate used to have bipartisan support, but with the Republican Party now skeptical about fighting climate disruption, some corporations are filling the leadership void. You know, almost 70 million people go through McDonald's every day. So we challenge ourselves as a company to be a better McDonald's every day. As chief communications officer for McDonald's, former White House press secretary Robert Gibbs addresses what the company is doing to reduce its carbon footprint. Another former White House spokesman, Jeff Nesbitt, who led Vice President Dan Quayle's communications team, is also trying to show Republicans a way forward on climate. If you're under the age of 35 and you're a self-identified Republican on this issue, never mind the Democrats or the independents, but just take the self-identified Republicans. They look like Democrats on this issue. They want to do something. Jeff Nesbitt and Robert Gibbs, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's show, we'll hear from two former White House spokesmen, a Democrat and a Republican, now communicating climate solutions. You look back at Copenhagen as a moment missed, but in reality, I think those discussions that we had in that room for a few hours, we didn't walk out and sign any big declaration, really did lay the groundwork for those big countries not being able to not be part of this. Robert Gibbs served as White House press secretary from 2009 to 2011. Since 2015, he's been the chief communications officer for McDonald's Corporation. We'll hear Greg's conversation with him later in the show. First, Greg talks to Jeff Nesbitt, former communications director for Vice President Dan Quayle and currently executive director of Climate Nexus, a communications organization trying to get the climate story covered more prominently in the mainstream news media. His new book is This is the Way the World Ends, How Droughts and Die-Offs, Heats and Hurricanes Are Converging on America. Jeff Nesbitt, welcome to Climate One. Thanks for having me. 30 years ago, Jim Hansen testified before Congress. Climate got onto the front page of the New York Times for the first time. Later that year, in the presidential election, climate was an issue. I'd like to play a clip from a vice presidential debate in which Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benston were asked a question by John Margolis of the Chicago Tribune. John Margolis, a question for Senator Benson. Senator, we've all just finished, uh, most America has just finished one of the hottest summers it can remember, and apparently this year will be the fifth out of the last nine that are among the hottest on record. No one knows, but most scientists think that uh, something we're doing, human beings are doing, are exacerbating this problem, and that this could, in a couple of generations, threaten our descendants' comfort and health, and perhaps even their existence. As Vice President, what would you urge our government to do to deal with this problem? And specifically as a Texan, could you support a substantial reduction in the use of fossil fuels, which might be necessary down the road? Well, I think what you can do in that one, and which would be very helpful, is to use a lot more natural gas, which burns a lot cleaner. But the greenhouse effect is one that has to be a threat to all of us. And we have to look for alternative sources of fuel. And I've supported that very strongly. Now, the greenhouse effect is an important environmental issue. It is important for us to get the data in, to see what alternatives we might have to the fossil fuels and make sure that we know what we're doing. And there are some explorations and things that we can consider in this area. 
The drought highlighted the problem that we have. And therefore, we need to get on with it. And in a George Bush administration, you can bet that we will. Quite interesting. So, 30 to, years to ago, it. you went on to become White House press secretary for Vice President Dan Quayle. Uh, President Bush did go to the Rio Earth Summit. But 30 years, what's happened? Well, can I just comment on that, that clip sure. first? That's, yeah. that's fascinating to watch. I, I actually was one of the small group of folks who prepared Dan for that vice presidential briefing. And what most people remember from that briefing is the famous Benson line, you know, about Jack Kennedy. You know, Jack Kennedy's a friend of mine. That's what most people remember from that right, right. debate. They remember the JFK line, not the climate. Right. But you look at that answer. Dan's answer, in my opinion, was better than Lloyd Benson's in that clip 30 years ago. So think about that. I mean, I would argue that Dan's answer, you know, that that it's real. We need to do something. We need to look at our alternative fuels. Um, he he answered that question very straightforwardly. No Republicans today will actually do that. That's that's and that is a significant political problem. Um, we need Republican leaders to to first acknowledge the reality of the of the impacts we're facing, which is why I wrote the book I wrote um, that's about to be published, and and that we need more leaders who who are willing to stand up and say, let's look for some solutions. The Republican Party has lost that ability in today's environment. And the recent uh, article in the New York Times magazine said there was a bipartisan consensus at the end of the 70s and the 80s involving Bill Riley, who was the EPA administrator Correct. under Bush Quayle. Um, so, so what happened? So what happened, actually, and, and I, I know this will sound strange, but in my previous book, I actually talk a lot about what happened. My last book called Poison Tea. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So Poison Tea, and the, the entire first chapter talked about what happened with the BTU tax in 1993. And uh, what happened is... And, and first the, price, first effort to put a national price on carbon. It, it, yes, it was the beginning of that process. They they proposed uh, essentially a carbon tax in the Clinton budget. It wasn't, it wouldn't have gone into effect as yet, but that, but as a principle in, in President Clinton's first budget, they proposed, you know, a BTU tax or tax on, on energy, on carbon on carbon. And the Coke Donor Network, which at the time, and what my book Poison Tea, you know, sort of unmasked was the, the, the relationship between the emerging Coke Donor Network and Coke Political Network and the tobacco industry. And they were fighting, uh, both of them linked arms to fight cigarette excise taxes and a BTU tax. And they knocked the BTU tax out of the first Clinton budget. And then, you, and then they've, they've used it as a bludgeon uh, inside of the Republican Party ever since, so that if anybody stands up and says, and you know anything about you know potentially a solution to the to the climate issue, there is always the looming threat that they'll be primaried. So, ever in starting from the early you know to mid 1990s until today, it's really difficult for an elected Republican leader at the federal level um, to talk about that issue because if they do, there's this threat that they'll be primaried. I actually happen to think we're seeing. Um, a new tectonic split in the Republican Party. I think you're going to see it really emerge in the next two years. I just talked to a sitting Republican member of Congress who wants to start to address this issue publicly and talk about it. At least half the party wants to deal with this issue on the Republican side of the equation. If you start to see that happen and it matches with the 75 percent of the American public who want real solutions to this issue, I think by by the next presidential election and beyond, we're going to see a consensus emerge and we're going to see a, um, a, a climate policy law at the national level. There is the climate uh caucus in Congress. They call it the Noah's Ark. The caucus Noah's Ark. One, you know, one by one. Yes. One Democrat, one right. Republican chaired by Carlos Corbello represents the southern tip of doomed Florida. That's sinking Florida. Um, he proposed a, a, a carbon tax to replace the gasoline tax. Any any traction on that? So I, I'd love to talk about that as because well, I help our organization helps um, the Climate Leadership Council as well as um, others who are advocating for a carbon tax. So the Climate Leadership Council is another effort. Um, this is called the Baker Schultz Plan. Jim Baker, former Treasury Secretary under um, uh, Presidents you know Bush and others, um, George Schultz and the, the Trent Lott. Bill Trent Lott is now lobbying lots, on it. Yes, lots of the. I don't know if you call sort of the old, old guard, guard yeah, of Republican elders. Yeah. Yes, the Republican elders has said so. The and and we're we're actually uh, getting quite a bit of traction around the Baker Schultz plan. We're not at the point yet where elected rep Republican uh, members of Congress will introduce it. But I think you're going to see that um, sooner rather than later. So whether it's the Curbelo bill, which in my opinion starts too low and actually uses the money for other things, I think the better approach is a significant carbon a price on carbon um, that 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 rises with an environmental 
Financial Integrity Mechanism, which means that it, it continues to go up until we get the job done, combined with um, um, you know, transparency about where the money goes. I believe it should all go back to the American people because once you've got a dividend that everyone is receiving, it's a lot like Social Security and Medicare, that everybody sees the benefit um, and doesn't focus on the cost, which might be a, a slight increase in energy. So I think whether it's Cabello, there's another bill that's about to be dropped that also talks about a carbon tax at the federal level um, by some Republicans. It hasn't happened yet, but will shortly. The Baker Schultz plan and others. We're seeing an emerging consensus around whether it's a car price on carbon or um, you know, comprehensive set of solutions. Um, even even half the Republican Party is starting to see we've got to do something like that. But introducing a bill is easy. It gives mm -hmm. you something to talk about back home when you go visit your district right. for Easter. Uh, they know the story of Bob Inglis, who was Tea Partied out of Congress. His He was a climate denier, vilified Al Gore. His teenage daughter came to him and said, hey, Dad, look at the science. He did. He switched. He said, I stand up. I believe in climate change. I, not I believe. It's not a belief. I it's not a belief. Yes, exactly. Except yes. climate change. Correct. Um, he faced a Tea Party primary. And those legislators know that if they stand up against it, there will be Coke money against them. Correct. And there's no counter. The Schultz-Baker plan may be logical, but there's no money behind it to go up against the people. But there will be. There, that's actually starting to emerge. There, there, some, so you're exactly right. There has it traditionally in the past two things have, uh, but two things have changed in the very in the in the in recently that are going to change that equation in my opinion. The first is that we actually have our own polling that shows us so do others. Uh, if you're under the age of 35 and you're a self-identified Republican on this issue, never mind the Democrats or the Independents, but just take the self-identified Republicans. They look like Democrats on this issue. They want to do something. They're the future of the Republican Party. And if they lose them on that issue and maybe immigration and, and racist um, tinged things uh, relate that the Republican Party is dabbling in, they're going to lose an entire generation of voters. They may lose their capacity to be a national party in the United States on this issue and others. And Republican leaders know that. But they, but people don't, environment doesn't rank in top voting issues. Can I, can I push back on that actually and show you how it does actually? It doesn't currently unless you do something like this. We just ran a national poll in Florida where we tested this issue. And yes, when you start at the baseline, concern about environment, it ranks down where it always does, ninth or tenth on the list of voters. When we started to ask um, the entire range of voters in Florida about impacts, local impacts, impacts to their economy, sea level, how sea level rise is, you know, uh, starting to, to 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 put salt water into their into their marshes and their and their lakes and their and even their communities, um, the impacts of hurricanes when it hits, and then we combine that with aspirational messages like, "Do would you like to see a solar revolution in Florida for Florida to lead the way?" So you combine impacts locally, impacts to the economy, things that they can see out their window with um, changes in their economy that are related to clean energy. When we did that. Climate moved jumped 19 points to right below healthcare as the as the second issue that they that would send in the polls. So I think we've been missing those connections. We need to make those connections between impacts that are occurring now, not 50 years off into the future, combined with the you know the 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 aspiration that everybody wants. We everybody wants a clean energy revolution. When you combine those two, then it becomes a powerful voting issue. And that's and and we haven't really done that yet. And I think when we do that, we'll we'll see those numbers move. Something I just learned about. The Environmental Voting Project is looking at mm -hmm. 10 to 15 million uh, so-called super Correct. environmentalists right. who rate environment very highly. 10 to 15 million of them did not vote. In Which is, a, it, that's crazy. Why? Yeah, they need to go out and vote. And, and their solution for getting them to go out and vote on climate is to not talk about climate. Right. To get them to Correct. vote because as a, as a pledge, I've, I pledge to vote or you vote because your neighbors are doing it. Not to talk about the issues, but right. to, but to basically reframe it. Right. And that, which and that is the you're exactly right. And then the other big change that you're going to see shortly is that lots of big companies that do provide money into the system that do lobbying, they're all coming into this issue right now. Even 
ExxonMobil and BP and Shell. Shell's been up on the hill quietly lobbying for carbon tax in the last year. They're all starting to come into this picture. Every I could cite chapter and verse. We Climate Nexus, uh, you know, runs the helped start the We Are Still In Coalition. There's lots of corporate members. There are other efforts that are. And what you're seeing is everybody other than the extractive industry players are all getting into this issue and want to see solutions. They're going to bring money to that game, so they'll start. That will start to help this system where you know that up till now, if you wanted to talk about this and you were Republican, you would get primaried. I think that balance will start to shift. Because for years, oil companies have put on their websites, mm-hmm. we support a carbon tax. But then didn't do anything. Didn't do a thing about it. And didn't it. lobby, didn't put up their money. I think that's changed. Well, I know, I know for a fact that's changing, and I think it's going to change quickly. I'm a vampire, babe. Sucking blood from the earth. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with Jeff Nesbitt, former communications director for Vice President Dan Quayle and executive director of Climate Nexus. Coming up, Greg Dalton asks about the connections between climate, national security, and mass migration. It's unconscionable that the United Nations has not changed their definition of a refugee. They have to do that. I don't care what they need to do. Climate refugees don't qualify. They don't qualify. That's insane. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to Jeff Nesbitt, executive director of Climate Nexus and author of This is the Way the World Ends, How Droughts and Die-Offs, Heat Waves and Hurricanes are Converging on America. Here's Greg. I've interviewed a lot of people uh, over the years and, and with audience questions. I vividly remember one moment about five years ago when someone stood up, a reporter stood up and said, you all suffer from the information deficit delusion. You think that one more podcast, one more radio show, one more book is going to change people's minds and get them to act. People are not acting for a lack of information. They're acting for other reasons that we can get into. So as a communicator, why do you think one more book with a doom and gloom title is going to make a difference? Because it's not just one more book with a doom and gloom title. And and so uh, let me back up a little bit. I've had hundreds of arguments just like you have with the information deficit crowd. And they're generally right, the social science. I, mean, I used to work at the National Science Foundation. I know how this works really well. But here's the difference. What has been missing, here's why I wrote this book. What has been missing is not that it's a doom and gloom book. It's that people, the American public, has come to believe that this is an issue that's way off in the future. Because all of the scientific models, every, the scientists are quite comfortable talking about things that occur well off in the future. They get profoundly uncomfortable talking about what, what's happening now, because it's much harder. So I decided we need to change this narrative, this media narrative, and, and just lay it out for people. There are things happening all around the world right now that are causing immense harm and suffering and pain and damages. They may not have started to occur in the United States yet, but it's only a matter of time before they do. So that's what this book does. It goes, and so it's, it's, it's not just another doom and gloom book about the future. It's, it's, it lays out in very clear, stark terms what is happening right now with water scarcity, food insecurity, climate migration, um, and several other factors. It's, you know, because people need to recognize these things are happening right now, not 50 years in the future. We don't have the time to wait because we're seeing significant impacts now that will grow worse and worse and worse starting right now. And you don't think people got that from Katrina and Harvey? I don't think they do. Irma? Yeah. Florence? In the moment they do. So all the polling shows in the moment they do, but then it goes away. In the moment they do with the hurricane, then it goes away. The cattle farmers in Texas who had to move all of their cattle out of Texas north in the drought, yeah, there's something going on, and then then it goes away, and the rains come back, and then they say, "Oh, okay, well maybe." Guess it's solved. Yeah, Guess it's solved. <laughs> so these things are are, are you know. So th- anyway, the, so the point of the book is not it's not really a doom and gloom book. It's to basically so that people need to understand it is here right now. The wolf is at the door right now, not 50 years from now. One reason that I think a lot of intellectual and issue-oriented books don't get through is they speak to our heads and mm-hmm. our hearts. And there's a moment early in your book where you talk about Terry Root, then mm. a professor at Stanford, and 
she breaks down and when mm-hmm. you're interviewing her, tell us that story. So, and it's even, uh, yes. And, and Terry, I mean, she is one of the pioneer, one of the pioneer scientists of the world. She, she, she taught us about biodiversity before anybody even knew what biodiversity was. And for those who don't know, and Terry was married to Stephen Schneider, one of the, 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 the grandfathers of the climate movement. Um, T- Terry was the very first scientist to, to ask the big question, are birds migrating um, and are they being affected by climate change? Are they, are they changing their patterns? So they move, you know, and she proved conclusively um, that they are. All birds are migrating differently because of climate change. And so that, that, be, that was the first big pivotal study. And from there, you know, lots of other experts. She was the, the co-author of the first biodiversity report for the United Nations report. She, she knew the story backwards and forwards. And she kept doing study after study after study that really made the case that, that you know, leading to now when we know that half of all um, species are experiencing local extinctions because of climate change. So that's all within her framework. In that interview, I was just asking her some simple questions about her field, and she kept breaking down in her answers. And I finally said, you know, why, you know, you know, why are you so concerned? And she basically said, I feel like I failed to convince the, the public about what's happening. Um, which is really, you know, tragic because the scientists know. They know what's happening. They can see it all across the board. And so I think she was just expressing what others do in a, you know, in a very profound and sad way, which is, I just wish the public knew what we know. You mentioned your work at the National Science Foundation. The climate conversation started kind of in outer space with chemistry and physics. Mm-hmm. And my own journey when 10 years of interviews at Climate One has gone from chemistry and physics to psychology and sociology and how our human brains are not well suited or wired to perceive slow-moving, distant threats. And that's informed a lot of communications, how to talk to people, not do, not lead with doom and gloom. I'm interested in your insights on the social sciences and the human cognitive part of the climate, because I think so much is focused on smokestacks and tailpipes and what's between our ears. Yeah. So I want to back up just a little bit. So whenever whenever you talk to somebody about a potential problem, you have to give the problem and the solution at the same time. And I'm and I don't if and she would hate me for doing this, but I'm going to use my daughter as an example. She's the currently the chief resident in pediatrics um, at UCSF Children's here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and she would be the first to tell you if you're if you're a doctor and you go to the bedside, you have to deliver the problem that they're facing and then the treatment plan. You do it both at the same time, and my my argument and the reason why I wrote this book is that w- people need to understand the problem is here right now and it's demonstrable it's across the board it's having impacts that affect everything from national security to food in you know insecurity to water scarcity to you name it it's all occurring right and now that's a very new thing we heard quail and benston talking about descendants and future generations Correct. and now, now we're the future generation yeah. i mean nestle did a survey of water scarcity and predicted that water scarcity would be the gravest threat facing our our, our planet by 2025 and this was 10 years ago when they made that prediction but to come back so so it's not that you present doom and gloom it's you, you, you people need understand the threat right now and then pair that with the solutions. And you have to do them both at the same time um, and, and in a way that is credible on both sides of the equation. The attack on science is something that's uh, been gotten a lot of attention lately. Mm-hmm. You know, you've worked at the National mm-hmm. Science Foundation. We heard you know, uh, Lloyd Benston and Dan Quayle kind of defending the science. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the What's the antidote to that? You fight facts with facts? Again, to cognition, the, facts are confusing. There's always a counterfact. They are, but the, yes, they are. But the antidote, so, uh, you know, I once wrote a column for, for, for Time Magazine about this, that the, the only antidote to fake news is real news. So, and science, evidence, and facts have to be the basis. When, they are, when science, evidence, and facts are the basis of policy and political decisions, you're, you're, you're always going to be on safe ground. When you waver from that, when you veer off into gut feel and instinct, and you, you move away from science, evidence, and facts, you're going to be in trouble because you're on uncertain ground. So that's why, why it's not that, that you want to constantly bombard pe- people with information, Anything that you work on from a big policy um, standpoint or pl- has to be based on science, evidence, and facts. Otherwise, you have nothing to base your policy on. And that's so 
I think we're almost there, honestly, with 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 climate science. We're back to a point where 75 to 8, you know, 80 percent of the people, the American public, generally recognizes that that climate change is, is a is real and is a problem. It's only 25 percent of the American public that you know thinks it's a hoax or dismisses it or whatever, and that's happens to be the same core of of President Trump's base. Um, but most of the public, and, and if you look at any major public policy rule, it's, I call it the 75-25 rule. When you get to 75% who generally want to see something done or will allow it, you're, you're, you're almost there. Then you have to get past the political hurdles. Well, we're there with climate change. Now, we're back to the media gets it. The, you know, most of the public gets it. The, only, the remaining hurdle is you know, how do you get past the political hurdle? And that's a, bit, that's a different question used to be that a big, serious uh, hurt Katrina would happen, and months later, scientists would say, uh, mm-hmm. maybe this was connected to climate. And then that gap started to narrow. And we can do it in real time right now. We, and yes. for the first time with Florence, I saw news accounts saying— climate, From Stony Brook, yes. Climate made Florence stronger, more probable, et cetera, in— as in real time, happening. as was that, that was from Stony Brook. Some, we actually helped. We worked with them. Um, they took a, a standard uh, c- climate model, ran it on the supercomputer, and were able to show it was Florence was was more intense, more more rainfall, more precipitation, wider in, in terms of actual area, um, so that they were able to show in real time the climate links to this to this hurricane. The other thing I see from Climate Next is called Climate Signals, which mm-hmm. is try to, you know, there's so much information, people overwhelmed in this, in kind of putting a little climate thumbprint mm-hmm. on regular news to say, hey, here's climate. Because I see everything mm-hmm. through a climate lens. Most right. people don't. <laughs> Why no, do? Most normal people don't. And they're like, hey, this, you know, right. this mosquito thing is climate. Mm-hmm. Hey, this fire has a climate element to it. Hey, you know, this road eroding has a climate element to it. Yeah. Well, thank you. And the, the reason why we started the Climate Signals Project was for that exact reason. So at any given time, there are dozens of events that are going on that make news locally all across the United States. That mostly is our focus. We have some global events, but mostly in the United States. And so what Climate Signals does is it, use, it uses all of the peer-reviewed scientific literature and makes those connections for reporters and, and, and people. If you want to know what are the climate signals running in the background connected to this event, you can go and, and, and find it. So it's, it becomes the basis of the background material that goes and informs the either the media coverage or the understanding of, of that event that's going on. Because we think that that's important. People need to understand, you know, it's a very complicated subject. So we try to make it as, you know, we try to make those connections for everybody so that they can understand. If they really want to go deeply, they can read the Nature Art article or the Scientific American article or the peer-reviewed, you know, science um, study or whatever they need, you know, to really go deeply into it, or they can just read through and make the connections themselves. People often look at climate and think about, okay, say you talk about sea level rise. Well, I live on a hill. I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And then you explain to them, well, actually, when you flush mm-hmm. the toilet, it goes to a yeah. treatment plant that might be flooded. Yes. Uh, similarly, with, with temperature, northern latitudes, one thing I learned from your book that I didn't know is that more warming will occur in higher elevations. Mm-hmm. I've had fantasies of, well, I'll move to the hills and it'll be cooler. Not so. It's not so. And all you have to do is look at what happens to ice and the, and the, the glaciers. I mean, we're just now starting to see the, the Chinese researchers who have been studying the third pole, the Himalayan glaciers, um, in just one region alone, and it's only just now emerging because they hadn't talked to anybody about it until now, is that in just one small area, 500 glaciers, smaller glaciers, have completely disappeared because it was hotter up higher. Um, and so, so it's, it, you know, that's so if that's the case, that's really dangerous for the glaciers that are at these higher elevations. That means they're, they're probably melting faster than we thought. Uh, we just, we, but we need to find out. And that's also going to have an impact on, say, the mountain gorillas who have to go to higher elevations. They might not be as safe as we thought or for the American Pike or anything that is going up to higher elevations. Well, you mentioned the Himalayas, the water towers of Asia, and the feed five major rivers, billion mm-hmm. or so people. You write about international stability and the National Intelligence Council under President Obama, build, building mm-hmm. on work under President Bush that looked at India, China, Russia, North Africa, elsewhere. So tell us about the part of national security and potential massive migration for which no country is prepared. So I'm going to use a couple of the, there are two chapters, one on Yemen and one on Somalia as, as examples. People don't realize 
Yemen has essentially run out of water. 14 of their 16 aquifers are bone dry now at this point. People have been, you know, predicting that would happen. It's actually happened. And it began to happen years before the civil wars erupted and chaos erupted. And the water minister and officials who were tracking this said, there's a water war coming. It's going to happen. And it will then lead to all these other problems. And that's exactly what happened. They ran out of water. Then they, and then what water they had left, they grew, they used to continue to grow cot, which is a, 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 a narcotic that people use. They ran out of water. That led to civil unrest, and the government collapsed. Um, then you look at Somalia, extended droughts, and also water scarcity. Somalia may be unlivable now at this point. So both of those present massive national security problems. It, it increases the rise of terrorism. You, you look in these places where there's no hope, terrorism movements begin, and then migration begins. Uh, we're seeing this now. Basically, you look at the Sahel region across northern Africa, all of those countries across the Sahel the the farms that they, they, they don't know what to do so they're they're just migrating they're just and that's the heart of why you see so many people trying to get to Europe and causing that trouble we're seeing climate migration right now and one of the things I talk about in this book it's unconscionable that the United Nations has not changed their definition of a refugee they have to do that I don't care what they need to do climate refugees don't qualify they don't qualify that's insane and sadly, because there is no standard definition and the United Nations hasn't recognized it, when somebody from the Maldives uh, tried to resettle into New Zealand, the High Court of New Zealand ruled, well, there's no definition. The United Nations doesn't recognize you. So therefore, you got to go back home where there's no hope in the Maldives because the ocean's uh, taking over the country. We had here in this room uh, the head of the International Rescue Committee saying that he didn't think climate migration was much of an issue. Oh, my goodness. I, we, in fact, the book kind of does it. It goes around and talks about the water problems in Jordan, and, you know, where migrate, you know, you're seeing migration everywhere. People are, when people, when the natural resources on the, on the land don't support you any longer, you leave. Now, it may be in country, but you leave. You leave where you are. The problems in Syria happened when, you know, the farms were no longer sustainable. They moved to the major urban cities in Syria. There were no jobs, and it led to chaos in Syria. You see that everywhere. I mean, we could go all over the world and you see that, that problem. Yeah, and that's for people who see have climate glasses and see right. climate, and a lot of people mm -hmm. don't see climate where, where you and right. I do. Um, I want to end, you know, we started with you as a communicator working in the White House. You're a journalist, communicator. Um, climate is thought to be the anti-story hmm. by some journalists. Chris Hayes at MSNBC tweeted recently that climate is a ratings killer. We've had Greg Gutfeld, Fox News. He also said climate is a ratings killer. It's one thing that MSNBC and Fox News agree on. Ira Glass has lamented that it's difficult to tell compelling climate stories because we know how they end, that there's not emotional surprise or tension, back to doom and gloom. So your thoughts on climate as a narrative and its limitations, because we know Humans evolve telling stories. Stories are what we connect to. And the climate story isn't getting through. I'm going to be rude here. Chris Hayes is dead wrong. Ira Glass is dead wrong. They're all dead wrong. They just don't know how to tell a story properly. Climate change is a human impacts story. It's a species impact story. It's a community impact story. It's an economic impact story. But it's, at its base, it's a human impact story. So it's not an environmental story. It's a human impact story. We, those of us who are communicators, we need to do a better job of giving anybody who, who, who comes into this story, what can they do about it? We have, we have actually failed in that, in my opinion. It's one of the, it was one of our big failures in this movement to give them, what can we do about this? I was involved in the tobacco wars way back when, and we eventually gave people, you know, Avoid secondhand smoke, and if you can, stop smoking. You know, we gave them the tools for, for getting away from that. We've not done that with climate. And maybe, you know, one of the things, there are natural solutions, for instance. There's science showing that if you build trees and create local backyard gardens, for instance, you're going to help. That adds up into a carbon sink. There are things that people can do. We need to give them that information. Jeff Nesbitt, thank you for coming to Climate Line. Thank you for having me. Greg Dalton has been talking to Jeff Nesbitt, Executive Director of Climate Nexus and author of This is the Way the World Ends. Coming up, 
Greg asks former White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs about reducing the environmental impact of the world's largest restaurant chain. You know, almost 70 million people go through a McDonald's every day. So we've got that responsibility every day to think about how we're better at being McDonald's. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Robert Gibbs was White House Press Secretary for the first two years of the Obama administration. He's currently Executive Vice President and Global Chief Communications Officer of McDonald's, the world's largest restaurant chain. Greg Dalton spoke to Gibbs about what McDonald's is doing to cut its carbon emissions and reduce its environmental impact. Well, Robert Gibbs, welcome to Climate One. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with a lead from a recent Forbes article that said, Millennials don't go to Applebee's, they don't have kids, and they don't buy homes. They do spend astronomical amounts of money on dogs and avocado toast, and they're a driving force behind a global shift away from meat. So as America's iconic burger company, what are you doing in a world that's moving away from meat? Right. Well, I mean, I think... Any brand, and particularly a food brand, has to live uh, where its customers live and to progress where its customers progress. So that could be a whole range of options. I would say, uh, I don't know the exact figures, but my hunch is that uh, we sell um, just about as much chicken now as we do Mm -hmm. uh, meat. Uh, And maybe those examples would consider that all to be sort of part and parcel of the same. Um, But again, I think the way you have to look at the world is you're either going to disrupt what you're doing to meet what the mindset of customers is, or somebody's going to disrupt it for you. Uh, And it's best for you to be in charge of your own disruption. So thinking about sustainability, White Castle added a vegan slider to their menu nationally. They're already selling... Uh, the Impossible Burger, plant-based burger. Uh, burger King has veggie burgers. Mm-hmm. When you think about sustainability, is the menu on the table at McDonald's? Yeah, absolutely. And if you think um, we sell throughout the world, I mean, first for people to understand, we have 37,000 restaurants in 120 uh, different markets. Mm-hmm. And so menu innovation uh, is something that happens literally all over the world. Uh, and we certainly have in Sweden or in Germany, uh, we will have different types of offerings. Some of them are, are veggie burgers, uh, different types of things that appeal to different customers. And so I think we're always thinking through and trying to innovate on, um, on what will drive customers. I think one of the challenges uh, we've probably candidly had in the U.S. is there isn't a huge demand for it. And, and, and if we were, we've put stuff like that on the menu here and, and not found a huge demand for it, maybe that changes again, as you mentioned with where maybe they weren't very good. A lot of veggie burgers aren't very good. Well, right. You, you, it, it is, it's a different cooking technique, right? So, um, no, I, th- I think, I think as we go along and, and as people expand, as their tastes expand, as the demand changes, you'll see companies like ours meet that demand, uh, when it's there. I talked with a sustainability person at, at Harley-Davidson at one point, and he said, we can make electric motorcycles, but our brand is so much defined by the roar of that Harley engine. Right. So a quiet Harley just doesn't <laughs> yeah. feel or sound like a Harley. So is there a brand challenge as a burger company to serving things that are not burgers? Um, I, you know, I... <laughs> Probably, uh, probably for all brands, there is that challenge. I would say to that uh, that person at Harley, um, as a as a proud electric car owner, um, when you step on the power pedal, if you will, so I guess it's technically not a gas pedal in those cars. Um, Accelerator, yeah, it's, it, it's thrill. I, I don't hear the roar of my car, but I I certainly feel it, uh, and it, it it can be a lot of fun. I think nobody, I think successful businesses. We've been around for more than 60 years. You, you're, if you're standing still and doing the same thing you were doing 60 years ago, um, you know, chances are your business isn't the same uh, or you occupy just a very different space. And so I do think that uh, people are going to eat beef. I think, um, I think more people are going to likely eat beef. And the ch- 
question and challenge for us as we have goals to decrease our carbon footprint is how do we do that? How do we do that in a better way? How do we do that in a more efficient way? Um, but I, I think again, who knows what? It's hard to picture what five years or ten years looks like. Um, but I don't think anybody can stand still. One thing that's coming up is lab meat, clean meat. There's different names for basically, you know, a steak or a burger that doesn't come from a cow. It's cells grown in a laboratory. Tyson has invested money in Beyond Meat. Yeah. Uh, Cargill has invested in Memphis Meats. These are both lab meat companies. Is that on your radar at all? Well, both those are suppliers of ours. Um, and again, I think with customer mindset changing, you're always looking out for uh, for where the market's going to go. Again, I think part of it really depends on how big is the demand for that. And I, I think many of those, as you mentioned, are a bit more in their infancy. And certainly they, 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 they will likely grow in popularity and find that customer set. And as that happens, you'll have more and more people likely come online. But again, menu innovation, what people want and where they're going to get it is, is if it wasn't on our mind, we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be here for 60 years. What are the real drivers for sustainability? Is it shareholders, customers, brand? What's really driving sustainability at McDonald's? To me, I think, I think it's probably all of those things. Um, I, think, I think customers are demanding more responsibility from the companies that they themselves want to be associated or do business with. I think... Um, Boards of directors and management of companies um, have seen and listened to uh, investors and shareholders, as you said, have a greater interest in the responsibility that a corporation has. And I think we also believe, because of our size and our scale, that we have both the ability and that responsibility to use it for good. Uh, and so I think there's right now a bit of a synergy with all of that. Um, and I would say too, you know, because we're a food company, where our food is grown, how it's grown, whether it can be grown is central to our business. So we were just at an event talking about coffee farming and, you know, you can't just do that anywhere. You have to do that in very specific places at very specific altitudes. That's changing. Right. And as the climate changes, as the biosphere changes, that's going to, it's going to put real pressure on a group of people that are growing coffee for a living, a group of people that are buying coffee and for coffee drinkers. And so in some ways you think to yourself, oh, this is nice and it feels good and it sounds good. But there's also part of it that if you don't get this right, it can really impact your business. We can't sell a fish sandwich in 37,000 restaurants without guaranteeing a supply chain that's sustainable. If you can't, you won't do that long. Uh, and the same is true for coffee, which is why our goal is to have 100, serve 100% sustainable coffee in our restaurants by 2020. If we can't do that, then we won't sell coffee for long. And that will be a big, big impact to our business and to the communities where that's a big part of the local economy. The Carbon Disclosure Project ranks and grades companies on various parts of um, their commitments. They, in 2017, they gave McDonald's a C on climate a B minus on water, and a B on forests. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on that? I know you're not deeply involved in, in the carbon yeah. accounting, but since you're doing pretty well on forests, climate, you know, average. And so the year that was 2017. Right. So it probably doesn't, again, take into account the big step that we did this year in, in March in announcing the verified science-based target uh -huh. around climate. One of the first food companies to yeah. do that. Yeah, and the, the only restaurant company. So, I, you know, I... I I think that's a big step change for us. Forests are hugely important. Um, our packaging and recycling, uh, our goals around making sure that we're using certified, um, only using certified products, that we're making sure that they're recyclable, compostable. All of those things go into these broader commitments that we have to make. And so I think we challenge ourselves as a company to 
to be a better McDonald's every day, to figure out how, because we, we're in so many communities and we serve, you know, almost 70 million people go through a McDonald's every day. So um, we, we've got a We've, we've got that responsibility every day to think about how we're better at being McDonald's. A lot of environmentalists look at cows and beef. It's a big part of any individual's right. uh, personal carbon footprint. Some people say that cows are part of the solution. They're not the enemy, that cows can be, when managed properly and right. not in a big factory farm, but spread out over land, can help sequester water and carbon in the right. ground don't kill all the cows, they can be part of a balanced right. ecosystem. And if that something, if McDonald's got into something like right. that, that could be huge. But is it legitimate? I think it is legitimate. I think the biggest challenge we have, uh, and when I say we, I mean the world, is how, how do you figure out the best way to do some of these things? And then how do you have partners that can scale it? Um, and I think that's part of where we come in. Uh, we're investing in and, and working on research with lots of different partners to find out what those answers are. Um, but then again, because we do business with so many people um, and because we have a supply chain that's so broad, if we can find some of these answers, we have the ability to scale that uh, across the value chain pretty quickly. A good example, 2015, we made a commitment in the U.S. to go to cage-free eggs. Uh, we use 2 billion eggs in McDonald's in the U.S. system. Um, there weren't 2 billion cage-free eggs that existed when we made that commitment. Um, but that commitment begins through egg producers to create a marketplace that, one, that we can meet that commitment, but as more and more egg producers now go because they want to do business with us. Uh, I forget the exact number, but on the order of 140 or 150 food and restaurant companies made cage-free egg commitments after we had made ours because that set a market, that created a marketplace. And it gives you that sense of power in, in scaling. And so I think that, that for us is figuring out how we can figuring out what's the best thing to do and then using that size and scale uh, to bring it to uh, a lot of different people. You were in Copenhagen at the kind of uh, failed climate summit. In fact, I think you were part of that famous scene where President Obama barged in on a group of countries that were negotiating behind your, our back, his back. It was a, um, it was a fascinating day. Uh, you know, we landed and um, all of a sudden you know, we're there, you, you want to start the, you want to get into these meetings. I know he was anxious to get into these meetings and, you know, you certainly, you're meeting with, with our European partners and then almost one by one, these meetings start getting canceled. You can't find the Chinese delegation. You can't find the Brazilian delegation. Um, you can't find the South African delegation. You can't find the Indian delegation. All these, oh, you know, Zoom is on the way to the airport. Lula's not coming back to the meet. All these sorts of things. And, you know, I remember juggling phone calls and handing the phone to the president. And he's trying to find people. And then I forget who it was. Somebody comes in and says, I found them. They're in this room off in the corner. And first of all, we had to get into the room. And that was no small feat because there were a decent number of Chinese security that, I mean, I literally had to push, literally push through, one, to get the president in, to get Secretary of State Clinton in. Um, I also wanted to make sure that if we were bringing the president into this meeting, that I had a duty as the White House press secretary to make sure that our press corps could, they can't stay in the whole meeting, but they, they need to get a picture of what the president is doing. We felt that was hugely important. Um, certain state security didn't think that was as important as we did. Uh, but when we got in the room, I, I mean, you never forget the look on, on their faces of, um, I forget the exact quote, but he walked in and he said, you know, I've, this is great. I found you. Now we can, now we can have a good conversation. And, uh, it was pretty fascinating to watch. I mean, it, you look back and you, you know, I, I wish we'd have done more to, to be able to broadcast that because I, I, 
you know, you look back at Copenhagen as a moment missed, but in reality, I think that discussion and those discussions that we had in that room for a few hours, while we didn't walk out and sign any big declaration, really did lay the groundwork for those big countries not being able to not be part of this. And I think that was the the big thing was, okay, we may not have, like I said, signed anything out of that, but everybody was sitting at a table again. And we weren't having this argument about, well, this amount, these amount of countries have to be in, we have to exempt these, everyone was sitting there. And so, you know, it, it provided the basis for what would eventually happen in, in, in Paris. A lot of people look back at that window of 2009, Waxman Markey passed the house, Copenhagen failed and think if President Obama had tried harder, he could have got a deal on climate, could have got something through the house. We got it through the house. Nancy Pelosi got it through the house. Uh, that that was a real missed moment. Ten years on, you know, a lot of damage has been done, fires, floods. Do you think that that was a real, if he tried harder, could he have got it done? I, you know, I don't think we could have gotten it done. Um, we were, one, we had, a, we had a lot of stuff we were trying to get over. Healthcare the first. Healthcare first. <laughs> Healthcare, uh, the economy. I remember sitting in my office the day the House voted and... Even though we had 200 and I think 40 some members, uh, the vote was agonizingly close. And it gave you a sense that this was not going to be easy. I will say, um, I think if you look back on whether it's clean power, whether it's fuel efficiency standards, a whole lot of things that the administration did that kept us on a pathway to making progress. And I think the President Obama used to, you know, progress doesn't move in this easy straight line. It zigs and it zags. It's up and it's down. The important thing is to continue making that progress and understanding that we have a limited amount of time to do some important behavior changing things if we're going to uh, truly save the planet. And uh, that requires us all to do what we can do when we can do it. And I think that's what's inspiring about having cities and states and countries and NGOs and companies all put that on the line and outline what they're going to do uh, to make all of that possible. Greg Dalton has been talking to Robert Gibbs, former White House press secretary under President Obama and currently chief communications officer for McDonald's Corporation. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea, Devin Strolovich, and Claire Schoen edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.